So let's give Joel a hand this morning. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I always feel a little awkward round of applause. The Lord deserves the applause. And yeah, exactly. Gary, Gary does that on purpose. Yeah. I'm going to actually open us in a quick word of prayer here. Lord, we come before you. We thank you for a time together. We thank you for an opportunity like we just heard about to, uh, to be your hands and feet, to, to go out and impact others for your kingdom, Lord. Perhaps those that are less fortunate, those that have, uh, are more needy. And Lord, we just pray that you will uh, help us here at Christ Community Church to be a beacon of light uh, and to be your hands and your feet to go out and spread the good news of the gospel and the salvation that comes only through your son, Jesus. Lord, we know you cared for the outcast, you cared for those that were sick and lame, uh, and you did incredible miracles when you walked amongst us. And we know still today that your spirit is alive and well and active in, in us and in others, and you're at work on this planet. And we pray that you'll use us for your purposes. We do pray now for this time that you'll teach us through your word. Let us be shaped by it. Let us grow in our confidence uh, and our, uh, just our certainty and our trust in you and in your word, Lord. May you use your spirit to apply these things we're gonna open in your word today to look at. Use your spirit to apply it into our hearts and our minds that you may guide us into truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So when I was a kid, um, my best friend and I decided one day that we wanted to build a zip line. I, I noticed one of those photos there from Camp Barnabas looked like perhaps they were raising a child, a little kid up, maybe he's going to go down a zip line or something. But we really wanted to build a zip line. The only problem was we had no clue how to do it, and we really lacked some of the key ingredients. So we, 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 we knew we had a rope. I mean, we, we, had that, we had that to start with. We, we you know, rummaged through the garage. We got a rope. Okay, that's the start, right? The problem is we didn't have any incline, and you sort of need some incline to create some gravitational pull down, down the zip line. So we didn't have the incline. And then another big problem was we didn't really have the runner apparatus or anything, you know, the, the sort of bearing system with a pulley wheel that, you know, you'd maybe hold on and fly, fly down the line. We didn't have any of that. Um, but when you're five years old, and I had asked my mom how old I was, because I, I thought I was more like nine to ten. I was like, five, 1979? you got to be kidding me. I, was, I can't believe I was actually attempting this when I was five. But nonetheless, my friend and I, we forged ahead. When you're five years old, you just, we're going to do it. We, we can do it. We can do this zip line. So we forged ahead. We didn't pay attention to the details or the dangers or the possible problems, and we said, okay, well, problem number one is we've got to solve the incline problem. So we said, well, how are we going to do that? Well, there's a nice big tree right here. My friend Matt and I, we like to climb trees away from overhead lines, of course, to be safe with the, with the old advertising campaigns that Kansas City used to blast kids with. Do not climb trees near overhead lines. Anyway, we, we had this big tree. We said, no, we can climb up the tree, attach the rope, and then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll bring the rope out into the yard and we'll, we'll attach it somehow in, into the yard. <laughs> That's another problem. But anyway, somehow I adhere it to the, to the yard. That'll give us a decent angle. And that, that way we'll, we'll be able to, you know, fly down this, this, this rope. Um, 
So we start down that road to build this thing. We realize, you know, might have a little bit of a problem with the, maybe some frictional heat buildup with our hands. Not that we knew anything about friction, but we thought, but Matt, my friend, oh, I got a, I got a solution there. My dad has some nice leather gloves in the, in the garage. So, so we went and we got out a pair of leather, leather gloves, problem solved. There are two ingredients, rope and leather gloves. That's all you need to make a decent zip line. Uh, we, you already know where this is probably heading. But anyway, so we climb up the tree, set it all up, and we're all ready to go. Um, you know, the moment of truth came, and the design's complete after probably a whopping 10 to 15 minutes of construction work <laughs> and, and thought process. Now we simply need a test dummy to, to try to send down the line. Any good engineer is going to send some sort of dummy down the rope. Of course, unfortunately, we had no good test dummy other than the, the short end of the stick fell to me to be the test dummy. So I know, like, okay, Matt, you, you stay down there. I'll, I'll go up the tree. I'll be the test dummy. So we climbed, I climbed up the tree. I was probably 15 feet, give or take. I mean, it was a ways up there. It was not, I'm not talking about just the first pair. We, we would climb trees pretty high. I was a ways up there. And, we, and I get up there, and so another problem hit us is that you know, really no good way to board the rope here to get on board with this rope. So you're looking at it like, how am I going to do this? So I get out onto one of the branches and I figure, okay, well, the best way to get, you know, load on is to simply jump out onto the rope <laughs> and, grab, and grab the rope. You know, of course, I got the gloves on to keep my hands safe. So I've taken care of that precaution. But anyway, and so that's exactly what I did. I go up the tree, I get out on the, on the branch, and then, you know, I'm, I'm looking around and here it comes. I'm, a, I'm actually sort of amazed I actually took the leap, but I jumped out there, and the first part went pretty well. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't just fall to my death right there. I'm still standing here today. But I did get the rope, and I did catch the rope, and, and, and I was there. The, the, the only problem was we had a little miscalculation. Really not a calculation. We really did no calculations that day. There, there's really no, no calculations were involved in this little experiment. Nonetheless, we realized, uh-oh, I didn't go anywhere because my probably 45-pound frame with the wrong incline on the rope, if you don't have enough angle, you're, not, you're just hanging on a rope at 15 feet. And that's, so that's where I found myself, hanging on the rope. And I remember, you know, I looked down, and Matt's a long way away down there. He's yelling at me, oh, go, go, go. And I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. And then I look back at the tree, and, you, and I can't really get back, because I mean, I had to do a little bit of a jump out there to get to it. And so I sat there for a, for a second, and you know, you, panic begins to set in. Your mind's going a lot of different directions. And then my, my next good decision was made at that moment. I decided, you know, I've watched people on TV, gymnasts, they do really good dismounts from the high beam and to the high bar. You know, I think, I think I could attempt a dismount here, and I could pull this off. I'm, I'm okay on this. I'll be okay. So that's exactly what I did. I just decided, well, all hope's lost. I'll do the old, you know, gymnast dismount. I let go, and I begin falling. The only problem was I had no training in how to do a nice dismount, and so controlling your body in a free fall is a little bit of a weird deal. You know, you just start going wherever gravity <laughs> might take you. 
And, I, and I'm turning and rotating, and then I realize I'm not going to land with my feet on this one. <laughs> the dismount's not going to happen the way I'm hoping. So I, I, that was my last good decision. I put my left arm out to try to go ahead and soften the blow. And then that's when it's like, you hear a nice good snap, and I take a pretty good bang. And the next thing I remember, I'm just sort of laying there, looking up with the tree branches above me, and I'm in this sort of state of confusion. And then I begin to feel a very large pain in my left arm. And I remember sort of glancing down at it, and basically my hand was at a 90-degree angle. So it, it was, I saw my arm just bend 90 degrees. And I remember sitting there, and I was thinking, that is not good. <laughs> and, and then I thought to myself, my mom is going to kill me for this today. <laughs> and anyway, that was a great day of engineering prowess, I think, right then and there. But no, no, no. Instead, what we had done is we had rushed into things that we had no clue about, we had no understanding of. We didn't know the truth about the situation, how to set it up. Uh, and so we, ha- we encountered a very big dilemma, at least I did. So Matt was a little, he, he got off the hook a little bit easier than I did. But anyway, there are times we find ourselves in predicaments where we've certain, we might feel boxed in, like there's no solution here. I don't know what to do. Um, things that maybe become very dark, a lot of fear or uncertainty as to what's going to happen, what's going to unfold. Um, Sometimes these predicaments are self-induced, right? Like the story I just told you. Some can be the results of decisions of other people and actions of other people around us that we end up finding ourselves in a precarious spot. And then other times it can be God's very hand moving us into a position where he wants to teach us something by putting us into a little bit of a box that we're gonna have to see how do we handle that situation. Now today, we find ourselves five days out from one of the largest holidays that our country celebrates. It's a holiday that seeks to honor Christ and his birth some 2,000 years ago. And interestingly, as we look at that story of Christ's birth, we find two very large predicaments that unfold that at least we'll look at today. One is a very large sort of box or predicament or dilemma that we'll see that effectively spans thousands of years, and how in the world is this going to work out? The other one is a very personal predicament for an individual to find how how that person's gonna handle a time of uncertainty, a time of fear, a time of of darkness, if you will, for that individual, Uh, a times where we have these apparent dilemmas uh, that we face or we feel boxed. And I want to look at this story of the coming of our Lord, uh, going along with Christmas, but also to talk here about what do we do when there's uncertainties, times of, of distress, times of, of potential despair, times where we don't know because it's seemingly dark and we don't know the solution. So to set the stage, though, for this first very large box or this very large predicament, We have to set a little bit of background, especially if you're going to understand the magnitude of the predicament and the incredible glory of the solution to the predicament. So if we rewind in our Bibles and go all the way back to Genesis 3, we find a problem that we all know from Genesis 3 that unfolds with Adam 
when he falls into sin and he transgressed God's one stipulation in the garden, not to eat of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And just like the Lord had decreed, he said, if you do, know that that day there's a, the death will follow. Um, and so Adam fell, as we know the story, and this created a deeply rooted problem that he effectively passed on to all his descendants. Because we can read in Romans 5, through one man sin, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. That's a predicament that we see still today is unfolding around us. Now the story continues in Genesis 3. The Lord promises this one that would come to crush the head of the evil one through the line of the woman. Through the woman's seed, one would come to deal a death blow to the evil one, um, the one that had just deceived her in the garden. And as the years passed and mankind began to multiply and multiply, I'm sure the angelic community watched on to see how this seed of the woman would work out and whether they could tell where this promised head crusher would come from. And we then know that that then promised line moved to Abraham. God chose Abraham. And you can remember, we look at Genesis 22:18. God said to Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And Paul quotes that in Galatians as well. So this is a, a very critical promise to see, that God promises through his seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Then we know as, as time progressed that Abraham had Isaac, and that led to the nation of Israel uh, through Jacob and his 12 sons. And then we saw out of those 12 that one was chosen in Judah, and the line of David began, began to shape up, and we saw God pick David to be his own king. And we can read in, in First and Second Samuel the life of David as David said, this is going to be the line of the king. And then Nathan the prophet comes, speaks for God to David. In 2 Samuel 7, 12, he says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. These were promises from God. They were, they were not in, involving any stipulations upon David. It just says, I will do these things. There will be one who will sit upon your throne forever. But it's also key in this big story to remember that there is an evil one working to try to thwart God's plans, to try to corrupt the line of David, the line of the kings. Uh, and, and if we took time to read of David's descendants and read First and Second Kings and read First and Second Chronicles, you would actually find that, in fact, that kingly line was very much so corrupted over time. They did forsake the Lord their God. They did turn away from the Lord and were steeped in idolatry. And it was during this time in 595 BC that we have messengers like Jeremiah who show up on the scene speaking for God. And he would, he would tell them and he would hear and you'd listen to it and it sounds like, wow, this seems that we're further solidifying a great problem. How's God gonna work this out? 
The line of the kings has been corrupted, and yet he says one's going to sit on the throne forever. Then he comes here in Jeremiah 22, 30, speaking about Jeconiah, the last of the kings of Judah. Jeremiah says this, thus says the Lord, write this man, that's Jeconiah, down as childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Now, if you were on the enemy's side, you're thinking, we did it. We've corrupted the line of the kings. We've even trapped God. We got God to curse the line that he said somehow was gonna lead to a king that would be there forever. We've done it. We've, we've, we've got him. But as we know, this isn't the case. Uh, God's not going to be trapped in his words, although it may seem at this moment like he's painting an interesting predicament for himself. But we do see these two big problems, and these are, this is part of the, the big box problem. If we look at the first problem, it is this, that Adam sinned, and this sin spread to all of his descendants, including me and you. Sin, by the way, that God, if we read the whole of Scripture, we know he demands a payment for that sin. And if we were to read further in the Levitical law, that if you want to buy someone out of a position like that and redeem them, the person to do that has to be a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman, a key word there. Has to be a relative of that person. Well, wait a second. How will one be a relative yet not have the imputed sin of Adam? That's a big problem, it would seem. Problem number two. God's promise to establish David's throne forever appears to be in jeopardy, does it not? As the kingly line has fallen away and now has even been cursed by God himself to never rule again in Judah or to sit on the throne of David. So the next question, how will one inherit the throne of David but not be a blood descendant of Jeconiah? Because he clearly stated that Jeconiah should not have a blood descendant sitting on the throne. Two seemingly very big problems that you would say, wow, I don't know how God's going to get out of this. Now, we as good students, we'll, we'll get to the point how he gets out, but let's, let's face it. God has allowed this to unfold in such a way that you would say, has he, has he somehow been trapped in this? Is he going to fulfill what he said? He's clearly allowed this to unfold. It seems, though, to me as if God wants us to see him work out of what might appear to us as an incredibly tight box, to see him in his glory and his wisdom somehow work out this seemingly impossible, all these problems, and yet to his great glory and honor and praise, he will demonstrate something incredible with these pro pro what we think are big time problems. Because if you fast forward to the first century BC, you'll find a young man who is in that kingly line of David. And if we open our, book, our Bibles here this morning to Matthew 1, we start out in Matthew 1. He starts out, Matthew has a purpose in writing his gospel. He has a theme he's gonna hit on. If you've never studied it, we'll, we'll touch briefly on it here. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's stop right there before we go any further because we gotta say, why introduce the genealogy here as Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham? Well, I think Matthew has a point. He's wanting to establish David, or Jesus as a descendant from David. But it's also, and that's key because any good uh, student of the Old Testament knows that the Messiah must come through David's line and sit on his throne because we have other passages like Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And he goes on, he says, and he will be called the Lord our righteousness. There's another reason, though, why I think he brings David and Abraham up, those two individuals. Those were the two individuals that God gave the covenants to that he promised a Messiah through. And those two covenants, the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, did not involve stipulations on them. It wasn't like the Mosaic covenant with the law. God simply said to Abraham, I will bless the nations through your seed. To David, I will put a person on your throne. And here we are, Matthew wanting to put a link together to David and to Abraham. And so thus Matthew presents the following genealogy, discussing the son of David title and building it. Matthew 1 verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of none other than Jeconiah, the one we read about in Jeremiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiah. Abiah, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. And Matan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Pause right there. That, those names, they just sort of roll off the tongue. You know, you just, we, we don't oftentimes read these genealogies, but the Lord took time to record them for a reason. And, he, and Matthew, as he's doing this, he's using one Greek word over and over and over and over. You wouldn't see it here in English. 
But he says, Abraham, Ganeo, Isaac, Isaac, Ganeo, Jacob, Jacob, Ganeo, Judah, and the list just goes on and on. The NASB translators decided to put in there the father of. But it was one word, Ganeo, which means to begat or to bring forth. Uh, and that's how they translated this, the father. But when he gets to Joseph and to Jesus, he, he does something different. He changes the wording when he gets down to Joseph. He doesn't use Ganeo. Instead, he introduces us to Mary, and he says, by whom Jesus was born. You might be asking, well, who's the by whom point to? It's actually fairly clear in the Greek because the by whom is feminine gender, clearly pointing to Mary being the one that, that Matthew's wanting to say, by whom was born Jesus. So if Mary was the one whom Jesus was born, why does Matthew focus the opening whole chapter and the genealogy on this kingly line leading to Joseph? Especially if we know that no biological descendant of Jeconiah will ever sit on the throne. And he doesn't eliminate Jeconiah. He actually records Jeconiah. I sort of want to skip that. I don't want people to realize that it's sort of a box and sort of a challenging predicament. He doesn't do that. He includes Jeconiah. You'd say, well, here's the, here's the answer to this. Matthew has a key point that he needs to make, and he wants to make it to us and to the hearers who have read his, his gospel in the past, that Jesus is the Messiah, and he is the rightful legal heir to the throne of David via Joseph. But Jesus was not biologically descended from the kingly line of Joseph because of None other than the miracle of the virgin birth, which we can read about in Luke 135, where the angel says to, to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, Matthew wants to establish that he is the Son of David. And so his whole focus here is to build this genealogy to lead us to this point that yes, he is a legal heir to the throne, but not a biological descendant of Jeconiah's line. So you'd say, wow, okay, I can rest a little easier. God dealt with that issue. But incredibly, through this miracle of the virgin birth, there's more that God dealt with. He dealt with this other big, big problem that we see, which is the problem of Adam's imputed sin passing on to all of his descendants, right? And the need for a kinsman redeemer. So Jesus, as we see through the same miraculous virgin birth, did not have a biological sinful father on this earth. Thus, the Bible says he was a type of second Adam, if you've read in the scriptures. And this time, the second Adam, Jesus, is found to be without sin, and yet, and yet, still being a kinsman, being born of a woman, and being taken on, the, on flesh, he truly could be our kinsman redeemer to the praise and the glory of his great grace which he's bestowed upon us. God worked this out. So in 1 Corinthians 15, we see this principle. For since, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And if we come down to verse 45, so also it is written, 
The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. A great contrast there. And you'd say, wow, whew, I'm glad that sure looked like a curveball coming down the plate there for God with the whole Jeconiah situation and the imputed sin. And, and yet we just see God, again, batting a thousand with his word. Um, and you'd have to say, why does he do this? And again, I think he wants us to see him every time, his word, fulfilling it to a T. Uh, but the story doesn't end there, right? Now we shift to the more personal predicament, also a deep, a deep uh, seemingly very dark situation. If we read in verse 18 of the same chapter of Matthew, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Let's pause right there. And say, wow, Joe, we're not really having a lot of fluidity here reading. I like to just sort of read Matthew 1 and let it unflow, but fold out before us. But here, here's the deal. We're not going to understand this predicament if we don't pause for a second and consider how Hebrew marriage worked. It's not like ours. We don't just get engaged and then one day make state some vows, and then out the door and they're off to the next phase of the honeymoon. That isn't how it worked. They went through a very an early stage, which would be in the engagement, and then they went into a, a, a betrothal situation, a, a phase that we'll talk about in a second, and then would come the consummation of the marriage. Uh, and by the way, they, they generally, versus our culture, they're fairly young. Mary was probably 14, 15, 16 years of age. Joseph, maybe a few years older. It's not, we don't know for certain, but that would make very good sense with the, with the way the Hebrew culture would have been in that day. Uh, so they start out fairly young, and then they start out in this betrothal situation. Now, what this is, when they would betroth be betrothed to one another in the Hebrew culture, is that that was about a one-year period where they, they wouldn't live together, they wouldn't be together, they had exchanged this promissory, you know, commitment, but they wouldn't be together. And it was during this betrothal period that it was like a, like a time of testing to make sure this individual, the, the two individuals, would, re, would remain faithful to one another, that there would be no infidelity, that they would remain true so that when they do arrive at the consummation of the marriage, that they've, they've remained faithful during this, this time of, of approving grounds to find out to make sure you're telling the truth in, the, in these things and you will remain with this person. And so that's the position. And the, the other thing to keep in mind is that during the betrothal, by Hebrew law, they were considered husband and wife. So any violation during that betrothal would be considered adultery. And we'll look in a second at the consequences of that. So it's during this time that we find Mary betrothed to Joseph, and the two had not yet come together. The scripture makes it clear on this, per the betrothal process. And it's during this critical promissory phase that Joseph finds himself in a very tight predicament, one that I think if we try to step into his shoes, you'd say, this would be a challenge now. Because guess what? Your wife, Mary, is found to be with child. Now, we can just read right over that because we know the whole story, but Joseph doesn't know the story yet. He's, Mary's found to be with child, 
And you got to sort of think, okay, what's going through Joseph's mind? What could he be thinking? Number one, he knows, I've never had any relations with my wife, Mary. So I know for certainty that this child is not my child. I, I guarantee you Joseph knew that child's not my child. Number two, Joseph knew the birds and the bees. He knew how babies were conceived. And I'm, I'm pretty certain he'd be thinking, man, some other man must have violated Mary or somehow she's been, you know, come to, you know she's ended up pregnant as a result of some other person. Uh, and then third, a very challenging predicament is he knows what the law demands. Deuteronomy 22:23. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death. So if you're Joseph, this is a challenging situation. Um, what should I do? To whom do I turn during this situation? How can I get out of this predicament? It would have been something that would have been a disgrace in that time period. It would have been embarrassing, just like it would be today. If you were to show up at a wedding day and find the bride is with child, and it isn't even by the man, her fiance who she's marrying, you might say, wow, that's a... That's sort of an embarrassing and challenging situation um, in a predicament nonetheless. So I think he's beginning to sit, think to himself, as the scripture tells us, how am I going to get out of this box? How can I escape this situation? And Joseph, the, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her in verse 19, planned to send her away secretly. That's his plan. He's figured out his out, and his out out of this predicament is to send her away secretly. Now, he's a good man, the scripture says. He's righteous. He's actually wanting to do the right thing. He doesn't want to disgrace her. He doesn't want to promote his righteousness and all of her unright, clear, clearly she's been unrighteous and unfaithful in this matter. He doesn't go down that road. So he looks for a way out. I'll secretly send her away. That's a word for a, a divorce proceeding to try to, to break this off. It's time to break it up. And I'm gonna go my way. You can go, we'll do it sort of hush-hush because hush, so, I really, I do care about you and I don't want you to be disgraced. Um, it's also key to see here that God didn't just immediately let Joseph out of the box. He actually lets Joseph think through this. He records it for us. And he lets us see that I'm not just going to immediately give Joseph the answer. I want Joseph to think, and we can see a little bit of his character here. And let's find out what he turns to and how he goes. And so God let Joseph consider his actions. Um, and so this had to be a truly tough moment in Joseph's life. But where there's darkness like this in a life, there's also the opportunity for great light to shine through. And that's exactly what God did in verse 20. But when he, that's Joseph, had considered this, this being to send her away and with a divorce, that was his plan, he had considered it. That's right, when behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child 
who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Lord stepped in during his dark hour, Joseph's dark hour. And if you're Joseph, number one, you've probably never been called son of David. He's many, many generations after David. And he hears Joseph, son of David. God, once again, is wanting to pound in the reality that this is a descendant of David. And then number two, I doubt you've hardly ever had angels appear to you in your dreams and give you this kind of message. Uh, So we see this, Joseph in this situation, and he's told, do not fear. And I think that's that's a key thing. Fear many times becomes the trap for us when we're in these predicaments and dark corners. Because Proverbs 29 says, the fear of man brings a snare, brings us further entrapped. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. And so what does God give Joseph in that moment? Does he give him a sign right there? Do some cool work right before Joseph's eyes so that Joseph just believes him? No, he doesn't do it. He just gives him his word. He just gives Joseph his word. The question always becomes, what do you do when he just gives you his word? Are you able to believe it? Because I'm telling you, with Joseph, that fear is real. The potential for disgrace and embarrassment, it's real. The box is real. The pressure and the, of this situation is extreme. Do we fall into the snare of fear? Or can we take the Lord's word on this? And this, my brothers and sisters, I believe is the key. God's word is the key as we navigate through the uncertainties and the trials of the, on this earth. And he wants us to see that. And it seems, if we were to zoom back out, it seems that even God himself wanted us to see this big picture box that he's painted earlier, the seemingly impossible box to escape the predicament of imputed sin passed on by Adam to all his descendants. The promises of God to David that seemed to come to an end with a curse on Jeconiah. And what are our options when we look at that big dilemma? See God go down in flames, trapped in his words, never to be able to meet his commitments? Or can we rest in his words? Because get this, God had already said in his word long before the curse on Jeconiah exactly what Matthew then brings to bear right then and there. He said, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, verse 23, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, my friends, that was a simple word spoken by Isaiah the prophet during the time of Ahaz, 150 years before Jeremiah spoke about Jeconiah. And if you were living in 595 when Jeconiah was going down in flames and Jeremiah comes and prophesies, you might say, oh, it's all over. It's all up. God failed. His word didn't come true. And he he, he was trapped and it's all over. The kingly line has been thwarted. But had you simply opened your Bibles and read the prophecy of Isaiah 7, you would have been reading exactly what the angel quoted that, well, hold on a second. There will be a virgin 
who will be with child. That sounds like a pretty amazing, miraculous event that by chance might bring God out from under this issue of Jeconiah and the curse on the kingly line. So God's incredible hand, as we see, weaving this tapestry of seemingly impossible threads and predicaments together. And by the way, one reason I read that genealogy is I hope in your minds you might have caught a few names. That person was a, pro- was a prostitute. That person was a horrible idolater. That person had a curse from God on them. That per- and, and you would be right. And you would say, how did God work all that out? To the glory of his incredible grace, he brings it about. And he, here we come down to the, the virgin birth, and we go back and we put ourselves back in the, in the shoes of Joseph, and we see he's given him his word, just like he had given his people his word back in the Old Testament. But then nonetheless, the heat is still on for Joseph. Two roads are ahead of you, Joseph. Secret divorce, keep her from disgrace, go on with life, escape from the box. Or option two, believe and obey God's clear and simple word. Simply take her as your wife, name the son Jesus, which by the way in Hebrew would be Yeshua, which, was, which would mean Jehovah is salvation. You want out of the box? You want out of the predicament of sin and darkness and death? The very child that's gonna be born, is, his whole name is embodied in the reality that Jehovah is salvation. You want out, you turn to Jesus. There's only one name that can save us, and that is Jesus. So Joseph weighs his options, but amazingly, it didn't take him long to decide, and I wish that could be said of us, right? Because on verse 24, Joseph awakes from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He did it. He did exactly what the Lord asked. In that exact moment, he took the simple and clear words, and he believed on it. By the way, it wasn't a dissertation from the Lord. He didn't give him three or four chapters to Joseph explain, Joseph, I know it's hard to believe, but walk with me on this. I'm gonna tell you every step that is is all gonna unfold. And see, I know it all in advance, so that way you can trust in me. He didn't do that. He gave him a simple thing. Just take her to be your wife. The child's from me. And oh, by the way, name the child Jesus. Are you gonna do it? Because it's still going to be a tough road to have to, to go through this and, and, and st- stick with it. But he did. He acted on it. Now, we're just a few days away from celebrating the event, the event of this incredible story that we've been reading about. A holiday that children around this country are building in their anticipation. They're excited about it. They're looking forward to it. Lexus has given us the December to remember event. So we're all, I mean, the, the, I mean the, we, all the advertising campaigns, we got all this stuff going on. The kids are opening the Advent thing every day, the Advent little calendar. They're excited. And, and I, even, even myself, I mean, I get excited. I got to go with, to my parents here back over Thanksgiving and we got a chance to, to trim the tree 
And I had the opportunity to get out all the little baby Jesuses that I had made when I was a kid. And over here, we have the, the two walnut Jesuses. One's a little bit more outfitted than the other one. And then, then over here, we have another one that we always like. We have the milkweed Jesus. And, and then over here, now this, this one, this was our prized, you know, you know, ornament of our tree. This is none other than little peanut Jesus. And, and you see the resemblance there. I mean, it's, the, the resemblance is incredible. And, you know, we, we, we get excited and, we're, and we sing songs and we, we have events and we, we, we have these, these occasions and we exchange gifts and all these things. And the reality is this is to remember what God has done in fulfilling his word through Christ. And you know what? I have, just want to pause and say, he's worthy of this kind of anticipation. He is worthy of our gift exchanges. He's worthy of us lifting up the cups with our family this week and saying, praise to the Lord for what he has done through Jesus, our Messiah. And then at the exact same time, while we have all of that, a dark cloud hangs like a veil over this world, a world still reeling from a, from a pandemic. Many people gripped with fear. Jobs have been lost. Whole industries wondering whether they'll ever be the same like the one that I work in. Uh, it's a very dark predicament outside our doors. We've even had a couple different students in the school district we attend that have committed suicide in the last two months. And you're like, it's a darkness out there. It's a cage that people can get trapped in. And it's sad and they don't have the hope to be able to see the light shine through and get out of that, that, that situation. But it's in such days as these as there's no shortage of people propounding to have the answers. Perhaps that's the media. Perhaps it's a politician. Perhaps it's a political party. Perhaps it's the scientists. Perhaps it's a big drug company. They tell you, we've got the solution. We've solved the problem. And the reality is they do nothing more than stir the pot of fear and anger all the more. They almost wanting to incite you and me in our flesh to pick sides and to further tear us apart as people as we dig in our trenches. But we of all people should know the answer when you get into this type of predicament. When we look outside our doors, what is it that we should do? Fight, fear, rebel, or is it rest in the spirit? Trust in the word of the Lord. Rest in what he's already told us, but truly believe it, even though we may not understand everything that's unfolding, just like Moses, or just like Joseph and Mary. Can his word be trusted? I believe it can. The, the issue, though, is there's many times, I think, or at least portions of times, where we may become hardened or almost insensitive or maybe even just disinterested in his word. Oh, I've read that before. It's too complicated. I don't really know. I've, I've already got all that stuff down. And that's a, a reality that does happen. And you can see it in the same story unfold, our same Christmas narrative. Sometime later in verse, chapter 2, verse 2, we see the Magi come from the east. And they come, they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for, it, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he said to, the, said to them, or sorry, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Now we know he doesn't, he has an ulterior motive here, but we see this part of the story unfold. Now, if you were a Jew, and this is a key, if you're a Jew and you believe God's word, truly believe it, and you know his word, how would you have responded when the Magi showed up and said, where is he who has been born? King of the Jews. We saw his sign from the east and we've come here to worship him. I would tend to think if you really believed God's word and had been studying the prophecies of the Old Testament, you'd say, can it be? Could this be? In fact, you may say this is one, you may rush home and tell your friend, this is the most exciting day of our lives. Men have come from a distant land saying that the, the one, the Messiah has been born, the king of the Jews. But how is it that they responded? How did Jerusalem respond to this announcement? It says they were troubled. That's a word and they were agitated. They didn't run immediately to Bethlehem as I would have if I, was, if I really took his word to me what it means. Instead, all we see is the Gentile king Herod is the one who makes the, the special inquiry. Go tell me if you really find this, anything out about this child. No response from the religious leaders, the people that knew God's word the best. They quoted the prophecy and yet no response for them from them. Can God's word become something that we know, but we don't truly believe it? Or we're insensitive, or we're maybe in certain areas of his word, we're hardened to it? I don't want to read it. I don't want to know it. Well, for those individuals, it was. It didn't result in any action. But may this not be the case with us. May we look deeply into his word and truly believe it and let it produce in us an eternal hope, which Hebrews 6 says is an anchor for our soul. And may we not be like them, knowing the word, quoting it quickly, but growing hardened, inattentive, without a watchful eye, thinking I've read it before, or ultimately I've just, I don't know if I can even believe that he's really coming back again. Now Jacob's son Joseph in the Old Testament was thrown in a pit, sold to Egyptian slave traders. Did God's word fail? Israel was boxed in at the Red Sea. Not an ideal position for 1.2 million people. Did God's word fail? Gideon's men were outnumbered 400 to 1. Did God do what he said he would do for Gideon? Samson was boxed in with 1,000 Philistine soldiers. Did God's promised word to his mom fail that day? 
Hezekiah was surrounded by 185,000 Syrian forces. He, did God's word through Isaiah to Hezekiah, did it, did it fail? God promised a redeemer, a Messiah, to sit on the throne of David, to have no sin yet bear our sin for us. He promised a virgin birth. He promised one upon whom the government shall rest upon his shoulders. One who would set us free from sin. One who truly would be our kinsman. And he even told us the exact location of the small town in Jerusalem that he would come from. Has he fulfilled those words? I believe the picture is this. He's given us his word. And he's proven his ability to take seemingly impossible scenarios and work them out. No matter what power comes against his plan, no matter how much sin and error and thwarting goes against his plan, he will never fail and his word will always come to pass. He's given you and I words for this dark hour that we see outside our doors. The problem is, many times we find ourselves looking at the darkness of the box and all the uncertainty instead of looking up. Do we see the darkness? Do we perhaps even feel the evil and the darkness beginning to unfold further on this earth? Isaiah 62 verse 2 says, For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the people's. But again, where there is great darkness, the conditions are ripe for the entrance of incredible, magnificent light. And my friends, Jesus has come as the light of the world. And mark my words, he will come again to reign on Mount Zion. And he says, look up and believe it. In verse 1 of Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see and then in verse 16, then you will know in that day that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor the brightness, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. And when you guys are with your families this week and you're celebrating Christmas and you think back on Joseph, young Joseph and Mary struggling with a very challenging situation, remember, they took God's word to the bank. They believed it. And they are therefore written in the record of the, the, the most incredible man that has ever walked the face of this planet. As it is written, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
And get this, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish these words. Let's say a prayer. Lord, I just thank you for the fact that you've given us your word. And though we look out and we feel and see a darkness over this earth and over mankind that still exists today, the veil of death, we know that you have shone brightly through it. And just as Isaiah spoke with with such confidence in that chapter 60, he speaks in the present tense. Your light has come right then and there that we too may live with that prophetic perfect tense, knowing that even today when we see the darkness, we can still know that our light has come and the glory of the Lord has shone upon us. And Lord, we're thankful for the light of Christ. We're thankful that his glory reigns and shines forth. And we want to esteem him all glory and honor and power this season as we celebrate and take time out of our weeks this week in our nation shuts down and jobs shut down and businesses close and people go to their homes. May we never forget that you made good on your promises, that your words will never fail and you have fulfilled all of them and the ones that are yet to be fulfilled, we can take them to the bank just just like Joseph and Mary and Moses, by the way, also did, Lord, that they believed in you and trusted in you May we be that way. And may your word not be something that we turn away from or we become disinterested in or we become hardened in. But may we search it, mine through it, like a great jewel, like an apple of our eye, that we may glean from it your great wisdom. For it is active and living still to this day. May you use your spirit as we go this week in our hearts and our minds to have joy and peace during this great season of Christmas. We pray in Jesus' great name, amen.